Oh, Word of Life, can you believe it? We are in the last message of the Luke and Acts series, which makes me a little bit sad, but also it's been an incredible journey. Um, so let's give it up as we go into the last message today in this series. Let's go. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Are you all glad you came to church today? Me too. Come on, let's welcome everybody that's online. Glad they're able to come hang out with us today. So glad you guys are here. Uh, last week, I mentioned and let the church know via video uh, that myself, Megan, the kids, we were quarantining. Uh, unfortunately, Megan did get a COVID positive case. And so um, she did not have fun with it. She was not one of those lucky people that just, you know, didn't even realize they had it. She had a rough go. Um, and so I stand here today and we are out of quarantine. We're done. Everyone's fine. Symptom free. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, she did not have much fun, but fortunately she's the other side of it now. She's resting up, she's at home, she was exhausting being sick uh, for that amount of time. Uh, but this Sunday was actually supposed to be, and it was scheduled to be a weekend where she was going to come and preach this morning. And so she was bummed that she wasn't able to, uh, to do so. But she did let me know what she was planning on saying, and she let me know, you know, the prep work that she'd done so far. And so I'm largely stealing from her. Is it stealing if it's your wife? I'll see what she thinks when we get, I'll see what she gets when we get home, but we'll, we'll find out. Um, so she shared her ideas and her insights, and so hopefully I represent her heart well. Uh, but as was mentioned in the video, this is the last week in our Luke and Acts series, and uh, it was wonderful. I'm glad we did it, and we're definitely going to do a reading plan uh, like this again. I think it was great to get everyone in the church reading along at the same time on the same schedule. Some wonderful feedback uh, came from folks that were able to participate in that. We've already got half an eye on doing something for Advent. So as we get closer to Christmas, we'll let you know what the plan is for that, uh, but hopefully we'll have something figured out for Advent. But week one of the series, which uh, seems like a long, long time ago now, uh, we've discussed and we concluded uh, that the hero in Luke and Acts, which is uh, one work split into two volumes, but the hero in the Gospel of Luke is, of course, Jesus. And in the book of Acts, even though Jesus has ascended to heaven and he's not on earth in bodily form, the hero of the book of Acts is still Jesus. Through the Holy Spirit working through the apostles, the hero of the book of Acts remains Jesus. Even though he is not physically there in person, he is still the hero. And today, is, uh, we're going to take a close look at a major biblical figure, a real hero of the faith, someone that is uh, a true Bible hero in the New Testament that we find in the book of Acts, and that is Paul the Apostle. And we're going to look at Paul the Apostle and the uh, role that he plays towards the latter half of the book of Acts and uh, some extra reading if you're interested at all. And if you like studying, you know, deep dive into Scripture, two books that I highly recommend is The Apostle by John Pollock. Uh, that was a great resource to me. I used that book a lot while I was in Bible college. And another one is a newer book, uh, Paul, a biography by N.T. Wright, who's a British guy, so you know it's good. In Acts 16, as Paul is about to embark on his journey to Macedonia, uh, Luke shifts the tense from they to we. So Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And up until this point in the, in the book of Acts, he's been saying they, but then in chapter 16, there's a notable switch where instead of saying they did so-and-so, they went here, it switches to we. And it's at this point that we can conclude that jo uh, Luke joins Paul's team. And so from Luke, we're giving an eyewitness account of Paul's travels and all the spectacular ways God uses Paul and his companions. 
And it's important to note that this wasn't written for Luke simply to preserve his travel memories. This was not Luke just wanting to reminisce about his trip, and so he wrote it down. But rather, in week one of the series, we looked at the intros of both Luke and Acts, and we saw that Luke's purpose for this three-year project, which is what it's estimated it would have taken him to complete both of these books, Luke and Acts, taking three years. The purpose of Luke and Acts is to have confidence in what Jesus said and did so we can spread the good news to others to have confidence in what Jesus said and did so we can spread the news to others. And this is why Luke is accurately recording the story and the details of his trip that he took with Paul and the companions. So after Acts 13, the story of Acts, it starts to focus and hones in on Paul's journeys around the Roman Empire. So as a reading about Paul's life, I found myself asking a question, how are we supposed to view Paul? As New Testament believers, as followers of Christ, how are we supposed to view Paul? Is he a hero? Is he a role model? Because there is a difference. See, a hero is someone that you admire and you respect, but a role model is someone you imitate and someone you learn from. Now, Jesus, of course, is the ultimate hero and role model, but Paul's example is to teach us something about being a Jesus follower. Paul is given to us and Paul is presented to us by Luke in the, uh, in the Acts. The Paul is a role model, and Paul writes numerous times in his letters that the people he's writing to should imitate him. And he's not just writing these letters to other apostles or extra holy people, but everyone who's listening to the letters that he's sending to, every church member that's listening to the letters Paul was sending to their church, he's saying, imitate me. And this wasn't just for church leaders or other apostles, but this is for everyone in the churches that they were encouraged to imitate Paul, to look to Paul as a role model. Learn something from me about what it means to follow Jesus. Not just the church leaders, not just the apostles, not just the extra holy ones. Everybody, look, imitate me. Learn from me. Learn from my example. But often, we lose sight that Paul and others are supposed to act as role models. And instead, we admire them as heroes, but consequently, we stop imitating them. We honor them, we respect their work, but we stop looking to them as role models in the mission that we are called into. And we can easily lose sight of our role in the mission and start to think that the mission is for someone else to accomplish. And this mission that Paul was on is a mission that started with Jesus as he initiated the kingdom of God on the earth. And it's a mission that Jesus invites all believers into. Acts 1.8, we've read this verse a few times in the series. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Matthew 28, 18, very well-known passage, especially in Assemblies of God churches. We take this verse very seriously, and we take it to heart, that Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. My friends, saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to his mission. And when we read about the travels of Paul, I don't believe he's simply being presented as a hero to be admired, but as a fellow believer of Jesus, and that we can learn from his example and that can teach us about participating in the mission of Jesus. And the key passage that we're going to hang out in today is Acts chapter 20. 
And uh, there a group of elders have come to spend time with Paul. They're from the city of Ephesus. And the leaders in the church of Ephesus have come to see Paul in uh, Miletus. And Paul had recently caused a riot in Ephesus, and so it might not have been safe for him to return. And Ephesus is 30 miles away by land from where he's staying. It's possible they would have come by sea. But either way, for these Ephesian elders, these elders from the church in Ephesus, to come and spend some time with Paul, um, it, was a, it was a big effort. It was a, somewhat of a trip to get to go and see Paul 30 miles away at that time. It took a while to get there. And Paul has started the church in Ephesus. And he was expecting that this was the last time that he was going to spend any time at all with these Ephesian elders. He was anticipating this was the last farewell he was going to get with them. And he wanted to pass some important things on to them. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 18. When they arrived, he declared, You know that from that day I set foot in the province of Asia until now. I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I've had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus." The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault, for I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. Paul is comfortable, and he's confident that he's a role model for the Ephesian church leaders. He points out in that passage that we just read that he ministered with humility, there were trials and attacks from opponents, that he didn't slow, but that didn't slow him down, that he persisted in his mission, that the next step for him is going to cost Paul everything, possibly even his life, and he considers it worth it. He's confident that he didn't shrink back, but was faithful in every opportunity, that he was faithful in his mission. And what was Paul's mission? We just read it. Let me repeat this. It's worth us getting hammered home. His message was the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. He goes on, verse 24, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And Paul then turns as a focus, and we didn't read this, but he gives the Ephesian elders a list of instructions in verse 32. He says, and now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. And Paul's message, repent from sin, see sin for the devastation that it is, see it for the absolute horror that it is, run from it and turn to God through faith in Jesus, that this wonderful message of undeserved grace is for you. That the message of Jesus is the single greatest message humanity could ever hear. But just like it says in Romans 10, how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Jesus gave his followers a mission, and the mission hasn't changed. Jesus gave his followers a mission, and the mission hasn't changed. And as we're living life sincerely pursuing this mission for ourselves, we're hearing about how Paul was living our mission It gives us something to imitate. Paul as a role model is teaching us how we can live out this mission, how we can live this life. 
Now, the specifics from Paul the Apostle and from you and me are, of course, very different. Different in calling, different in what the Lord has planned for us, different in time, different in history, different uh, place, different time of geography, different culture, different language, different circumstances, different environments, so many differences. And yet Luke has faithfully recorded these events in Paul's life so we can have confidence in what Jesus said and did so we can spread the good news to others. And Paul is presented as a role model to imitate. Despite the differences between us and Paul, there's plenty of things here that show us how Paul is a role model and how we can learn from him. And I believe that what we can learn from Paul in this is applicable to all believers for all time in any culture, in any environment, anywhere on the world. There's five ways I was able to pinpoint this week. And this list isn't exhaustive, but these are the five that stood out to me as key and important for us to grasp. Five ways Paul is a role model in the mission. The first one, Paul was completely committed. Paul was completely committed. Acts 20, 22. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what waits me, except the Holy Spirit tells me that in city after city, that jail and suffering lie ahead. Now, interestingly, uh, this isn't an awareness that came through maturity as Paul became a mature Christian, but the Holy Spirit had begun preparing Paul right from the beginning of his faith about suffering. So in Acts 9.15, but the Lord said, this is uh, the Lord sending somebody to go and minister to Paul and let him know what the life of faith is going to look like. Now he's repented and come to faith in Jesus. But the Lord said, go for Saul. Saul is Paul's Jewish name. Um, but as he begins ministering in the Greco-Roman world, he starts using his Roman name, Paul. But go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. And after this meeting with the Ephesian elders that we've been hanging out with in Acts 20, Paul does go to Jerusalem. He does get arrested. He spends two years in jail where he's whipped, he's beaten, and there's undeniable similarities between Paul's arrest and the trial and arrest of Jesus. There's assassination attempts. He's lied about in court. Then he's shipwrecked. And then he's imprisoned again in Rome for another two years. Now, if I'm being honest, any one of these things would be enough to mess me up. But Paul had all of it. And none of it deterred him. Now, just to... I think it's important that we put this right out here. I don't want anyone to be arrested for their faith and have to spend time in jail. This isn't what I'm trying to get across when we're inviting people to have the kind of commitment that Paul has. It's not a, I hope we all get arrested for our faith because then we'll have the same kind of commitment Paul has. And actually, Paul would agree with that because later on he goes on to say this, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as me, meaning a follower of Jesus, except for these chains. So the point is not that we should all seek to be imprisoned for being a Christian because deep passion and commitment isn't only shown in chains. Persecution has a way of strengthening the church and solidifying commitment. But I truly hope that the church in America doesn't need a sweeping persecution to prove the depth of our commitment. I don't want you to suffer the way Paul did. Paul didn't want others to suffer the way he did. But I do want you and I to have the same commitment to our faith in Jesus and to the mission that he's called us to, as Paul did. To have a mindset and resolution that no matter what, we're completely committed, completely committed to our faith. Second thing that we can learn from Paul, Paul thought beyond himself. The same man who told the church in Philippi to not have selfish ambition clearly had massive unselfish ambition. 
And he said as much to the church in Rome, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Jesus has never been heard rather than where a church has been started by somebody else. Paul has big ambition and big dreams for the church, and he knew he couldn't do it alone. To the elders of the church in Ephesus back in Acts 20, he says, and now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart from himself. I may have started this church. I may have been there at the beginning. My job as an apostle may have been to get things off the ground, but now you need to embrace the mission, Ephesian elders, and keep the message of grace going. It's kind of like um, a birthday cake. You weren't expecting me to say that, were you? But in the next, uh, the next few weeks, Megan and I, all three of our children have got their birthdays. We have um, three weeks of birthdays. We have our oldest son, Elijah, he's turning 10. And then we have the twins, um, who of course, they have a birthday on the same day. But they're three weeks apart. So we've got three birthdays in the span of three weeks. And our kids at their birthdays, they're young enough, kind of, 10's kind of pushing the limit, where when they have their birthday cake and they've got a candle for every year, you can take one single match, strike it, and with one solitary match, you can light all the candles on the cake. Now, if you think about Mike Chiz's birthday, <laughs> the reason I pick Mike is he's the oldest person I know, but... If we were going to get a cake to have all the candles for the years Mike Chiz has been alive, for a start, it would have to be a really big cake. Um, Anne actually told me it was easier to get two medium-sized cakes and squish them together. But I actually texted him this morning. I said, I hope you're not sensitive about your age. He said, I'm going for a nap. Anyway. If you've got a birthday cake with a bunch and dozens and dozens of candles on there, you can't take one solitary match, strike it, and then light all the candles. Now, if your house is anything like my house, what would happen is one person would light one match and would light a few candles, and then somebody would come and help out. And they would grab one of the candles that's already been lit, and they'd carefully lift it out, and they would start lighting other candles. Now, if it's a really big cake, like a Mike Chiz-sized cake, then you start getting a third person, and if it really is a Mike Chiz cake, even a fourth person, and everyone grabs a candle that's already been lit, and they keep going. And before you know it, you've got a cake where all the candles are lit. It started from one solitary match. But you can't take one match on one person and light the whole cake. It just doesn't work. But if you have this idea of thinking beyond yourself, this is not just about me. This is not just about me and my mission. I need other people to join in this thing with me. Then before you know it, Mike Chiz is singing happy birthday and he's a happy guy. It takes all of us. It can't just be one specific person that's doing all of this. The church has never done well when the, uh, the, the, uh, the success or the failure of a church and their mission has been built on one single person and the strength or weakness of their gifting. It has never worked. If ever there has been a move of God, it has never been because one single hero stood up and did it all. It is because there is a community of faith that is committed to being a part of the mission, whatever that part of the mission means, whatever it means for them to do. It's never about one single solitary person. It's about every single one of us playing our part, lighting candles any which way we can. Amen. Amen. If one person claps, we all have to. It's a rule. And just this past week, I was putting my daughter Esther to bed, 
And as we go into bed and we're saying the final good nights, uh, she's got this wonderful habit of um, wanting to drag out good night, because apparently that's like staying up late, is dragging out bedtime. So as she's dragging out bedtime, she sweetly says to me, Daddy, how did Word of Life Church start? So I sort of started talking about Pastor Dan Rott, and then we started talking about how Pastor Randy was the youth pastor, and you know, I gave a, a couple of minutes summary of how we got here today. And then she says, well, how do people start going to the church? And I gave her the truthful answer. I said, most people go to church because someone invited them. And that is completely true. Most people go to church for the first time because a church member they know and trust says, hey, come check out my church. It's not the best efforts of the pastoral team or the church staff. It is church members deciding, you know what, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to invite somebody to church. And I'm going to guess that there are people that are sat here today. I'm going to guess there are people, a part of church online, that the reason you became a part of Word of Life is somebody invited you. It is the number one way that somebody comes and checks out a church as a church member giving a personal invitation. And truthfully, that is how the church has been growing and the church has been advancing for 2,000 years, keeping the message the same and believers embracing the mission, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. That message continuing, believing that it's good news, thinking beyond ourselves and sharing the message of grace. Third thing, three out of five, Paul saw opportunities everywhere. Paul saw opportunities everywhere. Where you are is where you are called to make a difference. Where you are is where you are called to make a difference. Paul exemplifies this, but he's not the only person recorded in the Bible to have this attitude. For instance, when Ananias, who we've already mentioned briefly, went to go and see Paul, when he first had that encounter with the risen uh, Jesus, he had that incredible vision on the road to Damascus. This angry, religious man determined to destroy the church, determined to destroy the followers of Jesus and the community that they were building. He's on the road, bright light, Jesus speaks to him, knocks him off his horse. And when Paul is retelling the story of when he first met Jesus, he says this. This is from Acts 22. This is Paul recounting that event. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law, and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. At that very moment, I could see him. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law, and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. Who better to speak to an angry Jewish Pharisee that had just had his first encounter with Jesus than a godly man, deeply devoted to the law, and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus? God sent Paul someone who could understand his starting point. Paul described himself as being the Hebrew of Hebrews. And the person God sent him to help him understand what was going on was someone that he shared a lot of ground with. That is no coincidence. Then in turn, that's how God would use Paul. Paul, on his way to arrest, kill Jesus' followers, knocked off his horse, blinded. God says to Ananias, as he's given him instruction to go and see Paul, but the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people, and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen, which meant he could travel freely and he had protection under the law, more so than other Jewish men. 
Paul was from Tarsus, which is a Greek city, where he would have been in the minority as a Jewish man. It's not a very Jewish city, but he was strictly raised with Jewish traditions. So as much as he knew and was an expert in Judaism, he was also an expert in Greek and Roman culture. He was an expert in Greek and Roman religion and philosophy, which means that he can write things like this to the Corinthian church with authority. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I'm not subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. In both environments, whether people who are influenced by Judaism, people that are influenced by Greco-Roman culture, Paul was an expert in both. And it's no coincidence that that's the man God raised up, knocked off his horse, and sent him to go and speak into environments that very, very few other people, if anybody, would have been qualified or equipped to speak into. There's one characteristic of Paul. He took opportunities and he created opportunities. These are incidents that we would have read about in the past week or so. In Athens, Paul had had had, uh, some time to kill and he found a statue of an unknown God. So he called everyone to attention and used it as a sermon illustration to talk about Jesus. In Jerusalem, as the mob is gathering, Paul spoke in Aramaic, the local language which the mob was trying to attack him would not have expected and that caused a silence so he could preach. When in front of King Agrippa, he's given a chance to plead his case of innocence. Instead, he preaches about Jesus. In Malta, he's shipwrecked, and Paul hears of a sick man, so he goes in and prays for him. In Rome, he's put under house arrest. He can't go to a synagogue, so he brings the synagogue to him and brings in the Jewish leaders to start getting things going in Rome. The mission field is a way of looking at life, not a destination. That's an example we get from Paul as he's taking opportunities, creating opportunities, wherever he finds himself, that the mission field is a way of looking at life, not a destination. Even in the Great Commission, which we read earlier on, that go into all the world, we've read that as the mission is somewhere you go to. Go into all the world has has come to mean to many of us, and we've understood it and interpreted it many times to mean to be a part of the mission, we have to go somewhere. But it's a better way to read it to say, as you are going about your life, make disciples. As you are going about your everyday normal responsibilities, make disciples. You have different spheres of influence that you go into, make disciples there. Your life naturally has movement and activity. And as you're active and moving, make disciples. It's not about going somewhere. It's about as you are currently going, where life is, you are going in life. Make disciples. The mission field is a way of looking at life, not a destination. Fourth thing, Paul deeply loved people. We read the passage of Paul speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church, and he continues giving them advice. And let's look at a few verses that highlight the deep love between these believers. Verse 31, remember the three years I was with you. This is the three years Paul was with these Ephesian elders. My constant watch and care over you, night and day, and my many tears for you. When he had finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them. They all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. They were sad most of all because he had said that they would never see him again. Then they escorted him down to the ship. Then he continues his journey to Jerusalem. Paul had a deep love for these people. 
Now, normally when you come and you share a message like this, this idea of, you know, your workplace is your mission field, your neighborhood is where you're called to go to. For many of you, it's not going to be the first time you would have heard a message like this. You may have heard it many, many times before. Typically, what happens with a message like this is the response is on a bell curve. And you kind of have the bell curve where on one end of this spectrum, you have people that will listen to this and will be all kinds of G'd and amped up and accept the challenge and really feel motivated. Like, yeah, you know what? Like, I'm called to live on mission. And then you have the other end of the extreme, which people will just quietly say to themselves, like, yeah, it's easy for you to say. Okay, yeah, all right. That's for someone else. Yeah, I heard this one before. Da, da, da. Most people, of course, will be in the middle, which is just kind of nodding along like, okay, yeah, that's great. That's typically what happens. I don't want today to be the typical response. I don't want that bell curve of only a few people really catch this. So my encouragement, my, even my challenge for you today is nudge yourself along the bell curve a little bit. Let's not have just a handful of people take this challenge and say, you know what, yeah, I'm gonna live with this mission mindset. I'm gonna live with this mindset of, you know what, like, like, like going somewhere. It's not about going, it's about as I am going. That it's not this case of, you know, I, I just, you know, the, the mission field is somewhere I go, but no, the mission field is where I am, that where I am is where I'm called to make a difference. Nudge yourself along the bell curve a little bit. Embrace this message. The most common objection as we share a message like this is that people don't wanna be religious weirdos. And my wholehearted response to that is that this is as weird and as religiously fanatical as the individual makes it. Jesus said, you are the salt of the world. Salt, just like now, was used in food preparation. Essentially, it was used to make food better. Paul goes on to talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that if the Holy Spirit is moving in your life, this is the natural outcome. This is the natural overflow of your life. Imagine if we turn up to church tomorrow, or we turn up to work tomorrow, and we just tell the truth and refuse to lie. If we refuse to have anything to do with gossip, if we show kindness where others don't, if we have kindness and patience and joy and peace as we learn about from the fruit of the Spirit, what difference would that make to your workplace? What difference would that make to your family? Because let's be honest, we've tried being religious fanatics and it didn't work out very well. Come on, somebody. Amen. Stand out for the right reasons. Stand out for the right reasons. Salt makes things better. The fruit of the Spirit lifts the atmosphere of a room, makes it better. Let's stand out because we deeply care about people. Paul loved people. The example we read, he connected with them so deeply that the thought of him leaving for the last time was devastating. Deeply love people. First thing we said is that Paul was completely committed. We said Paul thought beyond himself. Paul saw opportunities everywhere. Paul deeply loved people. And the fifth thing, Paul was fully focused on Jesus. We spent time talking about how Paul was such a hero and a role model, but we can't forget that he's just a guy. There are two instances in the book of Acts, it's interesting that both Paul and Peter on separate occasions have people that start worshiping them, and both Paul and Peter have the same response of, don't you dare worship us. And it's important to have that same attitude towards people and individuals and leaders, no matter how heroic they are, no matter how much uh, you know, of a good role model they are. Peter and Paul, like, no, 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 no. That worship is not appropriate. Paul wasn't perfect. Him and Barnabas had a falling out that probably could have been avoided. Peter certainly wasn't perfect. I mean, he cut a guy's ear off. 
We read this from James that talking about Elijah, Elijah being one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, an incredible hero of the Old Testament. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. But Elijah was as human as we are. Yeah, he prayed and God did amazing stuff. I mean, he sent fire from heaven and burned up a sacrifice that had been dumped with water. Yeah, he stopped the rain for three and a half years. Elijah was just some guy. He's just some guy. The heroes of the Bible are all deeply flawed people. It's one of the major themes that runs throughout the whole Bible. But there's a deep love for God that's present during the biblical hero's finest moments. For Paul, this love for God was life-changing for him. And because he was faithful in his mission, it was life-changing for multitudes of people during his lifetime. And who could possibly calculate how many people have been impacted by Paul's example in Acts and in his letters? And despite his imperfections, Paul was consumed with a love for Jesus. In the book of Revelation, Jesus gives a strong correction to a church. They were doing all the right stuff, but they'd slowed down in their love for him. They lost their first love. And as we're on this mission, let's not let our pure and sincere devotion to the King of Kings ever slow down. Five ways Paul's a role model in the mission. He was completely committed. He thought beyond himself. He saw opportunities everywhere. He deeply loved people. And he was fully focused on Jesus. And saying yes to Jesus is saying yes to the mission. And what's your mission? It's exactly where God has you right now. It is exactly where God has you right now. Your family, your friends, your spheres of influence, your workplace, your kids' sports teams, go and make disciples. Where are you currently going? If God wants to move you somewhere, if he wants to take you on an overseas missions trip, he knows how to send you. He knows how to get you there. But for today, you're called to make a difference exactly where you are. And what if we truly embrace this? What if we really grabbed a hold of this? What if we really personalized this? What if we really let this sink in and really get a hold of our heart and really change how we walk in tomorrow? What if we were completely committed like Paul was, undeterred by opposition, and our faith was truly foundational to our whole lives, that we're prepared by the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus through every season of life, that we orientate ourselves around the kingdom values and kingdom priorities, that the mission and caring about those around us consumes us, what if we think beyond ourselves how the mission isn't just for church staff or leaders, but we all accept our role in the mission, that all of us are lighting the birthday candles, spreading the message of Jesus as far as we can. What if we see opportunities everywhere, that where you are is where you're called to make a difference. Paul saw every room as a mission field, a chance to show the goodness of God to people because the mission field is a way of looking at life. It's not a destination. That God may be at work at the next appointment that you have, that we live with a constant anticipation of is God going to do something in this next thing that I'm going into? We deeply love people. We've tried being religious Christian weirdos. It didn't work. 
So let's try doing what Jesus told us to do and love people. Let's try standing out for the right reasons, being salt and light in our workplaces, in our schools, in our colleges, in our universities, in whatever environment that God has placed you, overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit, making it better, seeing the atmosphere lift and change, being fully focused on Jesus, always being fully focused on Him. Human leaders, role models will all let us down. So we keep our faith in Jesus. Every up, every down, focused on Him. A couple of questions for you. Might be helpful to write these down. Maybe have a chance this week to pray through this. Think about this a little bit. The first one. Is your mission bigger than yourself? Is your mission bigger than yourself? Second thing. How does your life reflect your mission? How does your life reflect your mission? Jesus invited Paul onto the mission. Paul was faithful with that mission. He had a message, and he shared it unwaveringly, uncompromisingly. We've already read this, but let me repeat this. Paul's message was the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God, of seeing sin clearly for what it is, destructive, harmful, separating us from death, and someone coming to a point of saying, I'm done with that. I want to turn to God. I want to get back to Him. I want to see my relationship with God repaired and restored and healed. All because of having faith in our Lord Jesus. And it goes on, verse 24. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God, the wonderful grace of God, the wonderful opportunity that each and every person has to come and have faith in Jesus and put their trust and confidence in Him, to say, no, I'm done with the destructive junk that sin involves and all the crazy that comes with it, all the destruction, all the heartache, all the pain. I'm done. I want to come. And even though I definitely don't deserve it, I want a healed, healthy, whole relationship with the creator of the universe. And that is some good news. That is some good news. You may be here today and you may have never heard that that is the good news of Jesus. You may have heard it many, many times, but it never clicked for you. And for some reason today, it clicked. Some reason today, it hit home. Maybe one of the worship songs we sang was deeply meaningful for you. Maybe one of the Bible passages that I shared just really resonated with you. But for whatever reason, you're at that point where you say, you know what, as of this moment, I'm not following God, but I wanna start. And if that's you today, I'd love to pray. I'm not going to do anything to embarrass anybody here. I'm not going to do anything to make you uncomfortable or anything strange or unusual. But we are going to pray together as a church family in a moment. And when we do, if this is the moment where you want to make that decision, you know what? I'm going to start following God. I'm going to start following Jesus. I'm going to start this today. I'd love to pray for you. So if you will mind, everybody here, just closing your eyes and bowing your heads. Let's just give some privacy and discretion to those around you and give everyone a chance to focus on what really matters right now. But if you'd be honest enough and brave enough today to say, you know what, Tom, I'm not following God. I'm not following Jesus, but I want to start. If you just put your hand up just for a moment, just so I know who we're praying for. Anybody else here? Amen. Thank you. 
Amen. Anybody else? Wonderful. Thank you. Online, you can just click that button that says, I raise my hand. Amen. Anybody else? Before we pray, you're just saying, Tom, when you pray, please include me. Amen. Wonderful. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate people making the greatest decision anyone can ever make. We're going to pray a prayer together, and the words are going to be on the screen. I'm going to say a line, and then you repeat it back. And I want to invite everyone to join in with this. But if you're praying this for the first time, I want you to pray this believing that this is the first step in everything changing. You pray a prayer like this, and you believe it, life starts to look very different. Come on, everybody. Lord Jesus. I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, one more time, everybody. Amen. Well, if you're one of those people that put your hand up a moment ago, I want to encourage you. There's three things I'd ask you to do. The first thing is tell somebody today. Could be anybody. We're going to have the prayer team down here in just a moment. It may be a prayer team member. Come forward and have a prayer team member know, you know what, when that British guy was talking, something made sense and I put my hand up. It could be a family member. It could be someone that invited you to church today. But tell somebody today that you made that decision. The next thing is tomorrow, read your Bible. If you don't have one, we have them at the information desk out front. You can grab one. We'd love to give one to you, or you can get one online. They're free of charge. There's a Bible app that you can get at no cost. Get in your Bible, start in the book of John tomorrow, and then next week, be right back here at church. We'd love to see you again and help you as you continue your journey of faith. But right now, come on, let's welcome back James and Crystal.